Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with hearts um, open and eager to hear your word. Father, I pray that um, our hearts are tender to the conviction that comes and that it's tender to the encouragement that comes. We love you. Amen. We're in the middle of a sermon series with a pretty captivating title, Christian in a Good Way. Is there a bad way? And yeah, sadly, I kind of think there is. Brent has walked us through this series heavily leaning into Jesus' declaration that the kingdom of heaven is already all around us. That the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to help us live the kind of lives to bring us and to those around us into experiencing the kingdom here and now. The world needs people, Christ followers, Christians, to live out kingdom lives that show that there is a different way, that there is a life that flourishes when we follow Jesus. It's where the kingdom of heaven brushes earth. Today, we'll continue that conversation by talking about worry and judging and asking. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about three equally broad topics at Walker Harbor, and my message was over 50 minutes. Don't worry. Don't judge me. I was intentional to have a much smaller word count today, and I'm asking you to believe me. that's a terrible joke because pastor jokes are the worst. They're like dad jokes, are they? It's hard to put in a joke. (laughs) But in all seriousness, no, in all seriousness though, I can tend to worry. And if I'm being honest, I can find myself judging sometimes. And I realize that my prayers are just a whole lot of asking. And I wonder if you can relate. I remember sitting at in the late 80s, sipping my Pepsi, enjoying my personal pan pizza that I had earned from Book It. Did anybody here do Book It? Yes. And my friends and I would take turns at the jukebox, and we would play the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I don't know if it had a beat or what we loved about it, but which is kind of funny that that was our choice, because at 11, We really hadn't a care in the world. Do you ever wish you could go back to a really happy childhood memory where you felt free and there were no cares in your world? Because it feels like life is full of moments where I get that all too familiar feeling of worry creep in. The tightening in my chest, my racing thoughts, hoping that my deodorant is strong enough. I wonder if you feel that way too. Too many bills and not enough to cover. An illness or a diagnosis or a fear of one. A stressful job. A stressful season in life. A to-do list longer than the hours you have in your day. A difficult, broken relationship. Or watching a loved one make choices that are hurting them 
and feeling so helpless to know what to do. Worry. The feeling that's showing up and that's growing in the wrinkles on my forehead. So much of Matthew in these last few weeks, Jesus is inviting us into a better way. And then he shows us how. This week, though, we need to sift a little bit through his words and look more into the context of what he's saying. Today, when we open our Bibles, we choose a chapter and we choose a verse. But that is not how the scriptures were written or even how the original audience received them. These are pretty new ways to edit and read the Bible. The original audience would have gathered around Jesus on a foothill like this. We have a slide for that. To take in the entire sermon. And the early readers of Matthew's letter would have read the whole letter in community in order to catch the themes and the movement of what Jesus was saying. And that's really quite helpful. So let's imagine pulling out the numbers and the headings today and settle into our community here so we can find our way in the movement that Jesus is playing out. What we call verse 25 begins this way. Therefore, I tell you. Therefore, literally this means for this reason I tell you, which I think is so helpful. This matters most because in most of our Bibles, verse 25 has a heading above it, that, and it goes from treasures in heaven to the heading, do not worry. And when you read those headings, it causes a break in your mind, and it communicates to you that there's something different or something new beginning. But if we understand the actual language of what's being said is also through the previous words which is the context. Jesus is saying to us, through the earlier mentioned practices of giving, of prayer, of fasting, of storing up our treasures, we begin to train our bodies and our minds and our hearts to trust him. To trust God for a fullness of life, a life of eternal significance. These practices that Jesus talked about are not about us showing off to the world, but it's about embracing Jesus for a rich relationship with him. Jesus is saying, I told you all of these things so you'll understand this. So verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life more, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on his own. Birds, flowers, clothes, kingdom. What does Jesus mean by all of this? Through the practical reference of our daily needs, food, drink, clothes, Jesus is simply raising the question, will we fully entrust our lives to God? That is a deep breath moment when you think about it. Will we fully entrust our lives to God? How we answer that question will be a flashing sign on who we ultimately think is in control. And it leads us to the wisdom of Pastor Eugene Peterson, who wrote the the message version of the Bible. And he says something that's really thought-provoking. He says, a curious thing happens to us when we get a taste of God. It happened in Eden and it keeps happening still. The taste for God is debased into a greed to be God. I get a glimpse of a world in which God is in charge, and I think maybe I have a chance at it. That's another deep breath moment, isn't it? As we read through the Bible, not much has changed over the last several thousand years. The people back then were tempted to worship other gods, thinking that those gods would bolster their chances for provision. So along with worshiping God, they worshiped other gods like Baal and Artemis, hoping that they would increase their chances of gaining more wealth, land, food, status in society. In our culture today, individualism, or worshiping ourself, trusting ourself, has become the new Baal. When I trust in myself, the second I have to trust in something or someone else, worry and anxiety can creep in, and it can tend to take over. Does that ring true in your heart too? The question that Jesus asks, can worry add a single hour to your life, is as poignant today as it was on that hill. Underneath all of our worry really is just a craving for control, a haunting feeling of scarcity, believing that there's just not enough, so I need to create my own enough. I need to create a sense of peace and order through controlling my surroundings. The face looking back at me in the mirror is telling me worry is not adding more hours to my life. 
Speaking into this, Jesus invites us to live from a deep trust that God is here with us, caring for every single detail of our lives. Can we live into this? Are we willing to surrender control, to trust that God is good, that he is with us, that he is a faithful provider, a faithful meter of our needs? As we grow in our faith in trusting God, we loosen the grip on the things of this world. And when we loosen that grip, it leads us to a steady trust that God will meet all of our needs. He will meet all of our fears, all of our worries. The birds are taken care of, so I can trust that I will be as well. The flowers and grasses are provided for, so I can trust that I will be as well. I can steady my heart on the promise of knowing he is worth trusting. I know that we don't often know the outcome of what we're worrying about. And that outcome may not always feel good or be beautiful. What do we do then? We read in Philippians 4, The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a deep and steady peace that comes when we fully trust, when we fully surrender, when we fully surrender our desire for control and release our grip on it. Our circumstances might not change. The people in our lives might not change. Life can still continue to be really hard. But when we surrender our fear and surrender our worry, to him, we are flooded with a peace that passes understanding. Jesus is saying, don't worry. I am here. I will take care of you. We must guard our hearts from thinking otherwise. This first part highlights how we are invited to, inf to first entrust ourselves, our physical needs, our quest for control, our worries to Jesus. In our surrender, we will find a deep, steady peace. And this next part will ask whether we will entrust others to God. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Have you ever said to someone, or has someone ever said to you, don't judge me? My guess is yes, probably. But what did Jesus mean by that? Let's unpack these words. The Greek word is used four times in these two verses. 
four times, which should be a blinking neon light to say, pay attention to this. So what is this word, and what did it mean in its original context? The word for judge in Greek is krino, and it has three primary uses, which is really, really important to pay attention to. Judge, it, or krino, to make a decision, to pronounce an opinion concerning right or wrong. So this is about basic decision-making, which we find in a really small letter from Paul to a man named Titus. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided, Crino, to winter there. Basic, simple decision-making. And Crino also means judge, to be summoned to a trial that one's case may be examined and judgment placed upon it, of those who act in part of a judge for common life. For example, in John 18, we read, So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have not handed him to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Judgments to be made in court. And crino also means judge to determine someone's essence. Essence is the most significant element or quality or aspect about a thing or a person. Wow. And where does this show up? In 1 Corinthians 4.15, it says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Essence. One little word, crino, and three very distinct meanings. It kind of changes things, doesn't it? So when we say, who gives you the right to judge me, which one are we using? We're determining someone's essence. We're determining someone's worth. And in that, there is only one judge, which is God. He is the one who brings hidden things to light and sees the motives of the heart. So in the book of Matthew, when Jesus says, do not judge, he is referring to the essence of someone, that significant part of who they are. We do the first crino. We all make basic decisions and choices. It's a part of being a person. And we are safe when naming a choice as crooked or broken, which is keeping the court system. But that job of determining someone's essence, the significance of who they are, that is not our job. That is the job for our Heavenly Father. Yes, there are absolutely wrong decisions that people make. Absolutely, there is sin. There is right or wrong. There are things that keep people from flourishing and keep 
them from the good that God has for us. But it's not their value. It's not their essence. This verse also instructs us in how we talk about those choices and sin. Because there's a pretty big difference between saying that was a messed up choice or that was a horrible decision to she is messed up or he is horrible. It's important that we distinguish the actions of someone and the essence of someone. There is a different decision about actions where we know if something is wrong or hurting them or others and making those declarative statements about who someone is, who their essence is. These kinds of judgments on who someone is or judgments on the motives of their heart, they're not rooted in tenderness or a hope for change. And hope is always the goal of Jesus. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the, step out, the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. These verses are about using negativity for heaping shame and guilt on someone, which is a form of controlling through your judgment. If I can get you to feel bad enough about your choices or who you are as a person, then I think you'll change. I found myself thinking that, and I've even acted on that way. Have you? I think we all know that this does not create a lasting transformation in someone. We should be relentless in dusting our hearts for the fingerprints of malicious or vengeful intent. There's a quote, a friend is one who cares enough to guard another one's soul. There is such purity in those words. We need to be mindful and pay attention to the planks in our own eye so we don't get lost in the sawdust of someone else's. That our goal would be restoration, renewal, and reconciliation that we love someone enough to guard their soul because we love them and we care about them. That should be our hope and our heart's work. And in all of this, we leave room for Jesus to shape and reshape hearts, others' hearts, our own hearts, to move us all toward peace because that is his purpose for our relationships. We know that people are far more complex and they need more than to be shamed or guilted into experiencing a heart transformation. So if we can come to the understanding that trying to control people through our negative judgments just isn't fruitful, 
we can then turn our sights on what Jesus says next, which out of context can seem pretty weird. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus uses hyperbole, which is an extreme exaggeration, to catch our attention, to get at what is a common occurrence, trying to control someone by using good things, giving and burying someone in goodness because we think it will guarantee that it makes good choices and move effortlessly into a beautiful, safe, comfortable future. Dogs don't know what is sacred. Pigs don't appreciate pearls. They don't know the value. This is about giving good things to those who are currently incapable of appreciating them so as to control their outcomes and their behaviors. If they don't change through the shame and the guilt, then maybe I'll just try piling on good and see if that makes them do what I think they should do or be who I want you to be, or who I think you should be, or even something good, like if I do this, then maybe they'll live a life of flourishing. Jesus says if you give something good to someone who doesn't value it, someone who is currently incapable of grasping goodness, then don't be surprised if they tear it up and in turn tear you apart. Jesus has moved from teaching how we can entrust our lives to the Father through the practices of giving and prayer and fasting, learning how not to drown in worry and anxiety by trying to hyper-control our lives. And now Jesus is teaching how we can not control other people's lives whether through judging or piling on the good to someone whose heart is closed. This is about relinquishing control again, learning and holding fast to a deep trust in Jesus for our own life and for the lives of others. These are human beings that we are talking about. So we love and pray for, sometimes up close, and sometimes that needs to be from a distance. But then we learn to trust that God loves them monumentally more than we do. And he is fervently seeking their hearts beyond what our minds can possibly imagine. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. I think C.S. Lewis is pretty brilliant in all of his writings, but I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to read a little bit to you from The Magician's Nephew. I am hungry, said Diggory. Well, tuck in, said Fledge, taking a big mouthful of grass. Then he raised his head, still chewing, and with bits of grass sticking out on each side of his mouth like whiskers, said, Come on, you two, don't be shy. There's plenty for us all. 
But we can't eat grass, said Diggory. Hmm, said Fledge, speaking with his mouth full. Well, don't know quite what she'll do then. Very good grass, too. Well, I do think someone might have arranged our meals, said Diggory. I'm sure Aslan would have, if you'd asked him, said Fledge. Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly? I've no doubt he would, said the horse, still with his mouth full. But I've a sort of idea he likes to be asked. Most of the thoughts and conversations I've had about Jesus' invitation to ask, seek, and knock can kind of revolve around the crisis of faith that these words can cause. We don't always seem to get what we ask or when we ask it. Why? What does that mean? There have been thousands of cries and prayers and sweat and wrestlings with God through this. And rightly so, I think. I don't at all mean to belittle our pain and our struggles and hurts because I know I have had a lot of those. Or even pretend that I have an answer because I don't. But when Lewis wrote, I have a sort of idea he likes to be asked. Doesn't it feel like we've gotten sidetracked from the original point that Jesus was trying to make? While the asking and seeking and knocking are an important part of what he was saying, I feel like his original point was about our actions and the posture of our hearts He's inviting us to ask, to seek, to knock, because it's relational. And Jesus is relational. He created us and desires us to be in relationship and communication with him, to pour out our hearts, to share our hearts with him. Jesus' words are not simply about asking and receiving they're about an intimate, personal relationship with God. Who asks? Who seeks? Who knocks? A person who has not controlled their life to the point of not needing anyone or anything. A person whose heart is in the posture of surrender to ask, to seek, to knock is to recognize our desperate need for God. And when you knock, whose door would you go to? You would go to a door of someone that you trust. Jesus then goes on to say, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is so good. He's waiting to give us good gifts. He wants to give us good things. And he truly loves to be asked. 
Because what God wants is us, our hearts. And he doesn't want us to go through life alone. The words of Lewis gently nudged me to rethink how I pray. To ask him because he created an intentional relationship with him. To ask because he loves me, he sees me, he knows me, and in spite of all that, is crazy about me. And he is for you, and he wants that with you too. Jesus is inviting us to trust God with our worry, with our judgments, and with our prayers. He is a good, good father. I promise you, friends, in the glorious highs and the deep, painful lows of life, he is worth trusting. He's worth trusting with our anxiousness and our worries. He's worth trusting when we just don't know the outcome of a situation. He's worth trusting when all hope feels lost. He's worth trusting to provide for every single need that we have. He's worth trusting with our feelings about others and our relationship with others. He's worth trusting with our heart and with our prayers. He is faithful. He is steady. He is the giver of our peace when everything feels upside down. The door of his heart is worth knocking on because he always answers. He answers with a smile on his face and his arms wide open. And that is one of those moments when heaven brushes earth. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we stand at your heart and we knock. Father, we see your face, we see your goodness, we see your welcome. Father, we just pour out our hearts, our need and desire for control. God, we give you our worries, we give you our fears. Lord, we give you our judgments. Father, teach us to have a posture of a heart to humbly knock at the door and have us to have ears and eyes that are open to your face and your voice when you answer us. We love you. Amen.